Hello, and welcome to Legally Bond, a podcast presented by the law firm Bond, Shenneken King. I'm your host, Kim Wolf-Price. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Kate Reed, a member at the firm sitting in our Syracuse office and co-chair of our school law practice group. Hey, Kate, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Kim. How are you today? I'm doing well. It's really fun for me to have you on the podcast for a variety of reasons since I've known you for a few years now and I've seen your career grow. So this is really a great opportunity for me, and I'm excited to have you as one of the guests. Here, very excited. Yeah, thank you. All right. So uh, we have a lot to get to your practice in school law and the developments, particularly in New York State on that front. And then, of course, the upcoming school elections here in New York. So I like to think of this as maybe a little civics lesson and encouragement for folks who maybe aren't inspired to get out and vote. I, obviously, I have a lot of questions for you today. But before I jump into that, can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, where'd you go to law school, things like that? Sure. So, you know, my my path originally crossed with Kim back at Syracuse University College of Law. I'm a class of 2011 graduate. That seems like a really long time ago. And yet, simultaneously just yesterday now. I agree with you wholly. Yes. <laughs> so I came to Syracuse University College of Law via various paths, but I, I was originally born in Canada, grew up for a large part in Maine, graduated from Miami University of Ohio with a degree in philosophy and religion and then came to Syracuse University College of Law in 2008 and have been at Bond for my entire career with the exception of one year that I call my um, my little public sector foray, which was in 2017. I left the firm temporarily to go serve as general counsel of Ithaca City School District, where I was a member of the um, superintendent's executive cabinet and an in-house member of a school district team, which was great and formed a wonderful experience and foundation for my career as a school attorney when I returned to Bond in 2018. That's great. Yeah, I imagine that year really helped you get a good perspective on what your clients go through every day, which is makes it really a well-rounded practice. It was fantastic. It was an experience that I will cherish forever and definitely a great opportunity to be able to be on the ground, to be able to see the issues as they're actually coming into a school district and respond to them on the ground in real time, as opposed to, I think we as lawyers sometimes can be in our ivory tower, so to speak, where the solutions that seem very obvious to us are not necessarily practical solutions when you're on the ground. So being able to understand from the client perspective has been really important and something I'll take with me through my whole career. Yeah, that's fantastic. And you make very good points there that we have to remember the perspective isn't always just what the books tell us. Absolutely. Uh, So I I think a good place to start then is, so when you were in law school, did you even know that school law was an option or a practice area? And how did you get to be a school law attorney? (laughs) So that's a a great question. I didn't. And and it is an area of law. I, I personally did not know anything about education law. I didn't take any education law courses. I left law school thinking generally I was interested in doing some kind of complex litigation um, related practice. And um, when I landed at Bond, I was initially really pleased to be assigned to the the litigation department at Bond, where I had my hands in many, many different things, many different areas of law. Um, Initially, I had had an interest in environmental law and, you know, had some opportunities to work in that practice area as well. I think the thing that ultimately cemented my practice as an education practitioner was very early when I was assigned to the litigation department. One of the senior partners in that department, who was one of my mentors, Jonathan Fellows, um, took me aside and said, you know, I'd really like to train you on special education. And I really didn't even know what that was. All I knew was 
was that it was an area that there was a need in the firm to have more people to learn about special education and to serve our school clients. Jonathan had been doing the lion's share of the special ed work in the firm up until that point. And I remember very distinctly that he must have sensed that I was on the fence about whether I would be interested in that because he said, if you don't like it, you don't have to keep doing it, but I'd like you to try. Um, and I, I joke with him now that I guess he was a little bit too successful because I vastly, vastly preferred education practice and working with schools, all of the other litigation practice that I was doing. So I, I ended up staying in the litigation department for about uh, six years, at which point I transferred formally to the labor department, which is really the site of our school practice at Bond, where most of our school practitioners are located. And at that point, did they slightly left turn towards being exclusively a school district representative and representing school districts in all areas of their operations and as well as litigated matters as well. I continue to handle litigated matters for our school clients, which I enjoy, but I also serve as a general counselor and advisor on any, any other manner of things. So what started in special education grew into other areas of law and became just a, a really engrossing and, and wonderful practice that I, you know, I learn something new every day and really enjoy what I do. So always happy to talk about it. <laughs> well, I think that's fantastic. I mean, I think that's great on a number of levels, that the fact that you were able to sort of find the thing that in law that you were passionate about, that you had a mentor who was willing to sort of guide you there and that your clients get the advantage of somebody who really loves what they do. So that's a great, that's a great story. I always like paths that aren't straight lines, I have to admit. Um, <laughs> so, well, I think it's a good point too, then to talk about just how vast and kind of complex school law practice is and the different types of things you do. I mean, you mentioned everything from general counsel to litigation. Do you want to talk a little bit about the different types of things that school districts may come to you for or the different ways you engage with your clients? Yeah, the school, I think one of the things I like about this, well, there, there's a couple of things I really love about the school practice. The, um, the big one that I'll say that is less about the substance of what I do and more about the the, the drive for me to really to, to be involved in something that I find meaningful, which is serving school districts at Bond is really like the best of both worlds. I feel like I'm serving within a public interest practice where I'm serving the better good. I'm serving kids. I'm serving people that at the end of the day care about doing what's right for kids versus um, making profit or anything other, you know, any other kind of private gain. Um, so being able to do that within a, with the support and the structure and the expertise of a large corporate law firm is really just amazing. It's kind of the best of both worlds. Um, but the other thing I love about the school practice and representing school districts is the diversity, as you alluded to, in the practice areas that I touch. So school districts are, I, I think a lot of people are surprised to learn, just extremely sophisticated and complex entities particularly in New York state, which is, you know, what I'm familiar with. School districts are obviously employers, they're childcare providers. That's where we tend to think their role begins and ends, but it's much more complicated than that. Many districts a few years back, I'll give an example, were surprised to learn that they qualify as public water authorities when it was discovered that many of our ancient buildings had problems with lead in the water yes. exceeded the EPA allowable le limits. And, and school districts were very surprised to learn that under our under our state and federal regulations for environmental protection, qualifies public water suppliers. So huge, right? No idea. No idea about that. Yeah, school districts can be at the forefront of really complex racial justice issues. You know, we uh, one of the districts I represented had a very high profile matter that really ended up putting them on the map a couple of years ago when they made a casting decision regarding the lead in one of their plays that ended up bringing up really, really complex issues of access and equity and, you know, the rights of 
children who come from diverse backgrounds to access the traditional arts, music, theater, instrumental music, etc. And how they navigated that was really just incredibly informative for me. School districts obviously have complex employment obligations. They collective bargaining obligations, for instance, um, that demand a lot of their attention as well. Uh, their landlords, in many instances, you know, they own facilities that they manage for which they have to comply with uh, state environmental quality assurance processes, and they have to comply with other environmental regulations. They rent their property to other entities. They rent property from other entities. So there's complex real property considerations. They are public entities as far as our state constitution is concerned from a local finance standpoint. So they can't, you know, I'm, I'm fond of telling my school clients that your powers and your duties are circumscribed by state statute. You have the powers that the legislature gave you and you can't invent powers beyond what the legislature gave you. That's right. And those powers flow from our state constitution. So there's, you know, part of my practice is informing school boards and school districts about their powers, their rights, and their abilities, you know, to be able to do what they can do what they want to do and accomplish what they want to accomplish for kids within the confines of their legal powers and duties as given to them by the legislature and the constitution. Yeah, that's really amazing. I mean, it gives you this advising ability and to help them get better at things, right? Because I think that's the goal. All the school districts want to do better for the kids, do better for the taxpayers and to just, you know, really, it is sort of a positive overall goal that they have. So one of the things you and I have talked about before is that as zealous advocates, which we are for our clients and have to be, it's part of our ethical duty, we can do that with this eye towards justice issues and inclusion. And you must get a really good view of that in school law and the ability to sort of talk those issues through with the educators and the administrators who who run the districts. Absolutely. I mean, most people that go into school board, either administration or school governance, they do so because they want to make the world a better place and they want to do right by kids. And that's really at root. That is why I enjoy my practice so much, because um, even though there can be differences of opinions about how we're going to get there and what we're going to do to accomplish that goal, the goal is is pretty clear for most of the people that I work with, that I have the pleasure of working with and calling my clients. The goal is to do what's right by kids. And doing what's right by kids increasingly means doing what's right by all kids and making education accessible to all kids, recognizing the role that schools play, for instance, in the school to prison pipeline and trying to disrupt those systems that have traditionally disempowered and led to systemic and structural racism. Schools are very, very cognizant of those issues. They have, I don't want to say mandates, but they have strong recommendations from, you know, from their their regulators to be able to, to be mindful of those issues and to be revising their policies and their practices to try to be mindful of that. And I've learned just a ton working with school boards and school administrators about inclusive education, about, you know, making education accessible to all, disrupting hiring practices, for instance, as well, so that hiring and and promotional practices are more inclusive as well. There's just a lot that's going on in education around all of those issues. Uh, Similar, I think, to what we all are familiar with at the the higher education level, but it's happening in our K-12 education systems as well. And that's really where the process starts. Yeah, and that's I think it's wonderful to hear. And when I talk to those of you in the um, the school practice group, it always you know gives me um, additional hope, and that it's really starting you know at such a young age, and that there are passionate professionals focused on these issues to disrupt that pipeline to prison, and to to, to really make sure that 
the issue of equity and inclusion is embedded in our education system and that we're disrupting old systems that have been put in place. I always love these conversations. <laughs> it's, it's really fun. And I do too. And that's why, that's why I love the clients that I work with. And it really, a big part of that is policy. And our role as counselors and advisors to our school clients involves shaping and helping boards craft policy, which is one of their primary statutory obligations in your state law is to craft policy for districts. And although some there can be a tendency to, to treat that process somewhat formulaically, there's real opportunities for shaping the vision of the school district through the board's role in policy. And we take that role and our role as advisors very seriously to try to understand what the objectives of the board are and to help them shape policy to help them accomplish those objectives. That's got to be challenging, but really rewarding work. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, as we talk about all of this in New York State, we're also coming up on election time around school budgets and school board elections. And so what date is that? Our uniform uh, school election and budget date is scheduled for May 18th in New York State. So school boards around the state in tiny rural districts up through large, uh, small city school districts will be having their annual district meeting, it is called, which is where they vote on, uh, where the voters vote on their budgets for the upcoming school year, as well as for the individuals who will serve on uh, the Board of Education. So it's also the school election process. You'll also potentially, if you're going to the polls on May 18th, you may see other types of propositions on the ballots. So by law, there's certain propositions, certain actions that the school district cannot take without voter approval. Some examples are, for instance, um, selling, disposing of real property, funding a capital project. So you may be asked, your, your school district may be asking you to vote on, prove them financing a large sum of money to be able to do some significant capital improvements. And that may be- New, new roofs for all the schools or something. <laughs> yep, yep. So this is an interesting budget cycle. Very different than last year's budget cycle for a lot of school districts. So schools are, um, as I said, I always go back to schools are limited in what they can do by the state constitution and by our legislature. And one of the ways that they're so limited is in how they can raise money. So this is something that's sometimes surprising for people to hear. School districts can't go out and fundraise. They're prohibited actually from doing that. So the only way that school districts raise money is through gifts and through taxation of their of the individuals within their boundaries and through state and federal aid. And state taxation has been significantly circumscribed since approximately 2012 due to the enactment of the New York State tax cap legislation, which is essentially a cap on the growth of school district budgets. It's a vexatious, horrible piece of legislation that I fought against since 2012. But unfortunately, I'm like Don Quixote fighting the windmills. I don't think I'm going to get very far on that. Um, oh, okay. And I have faith in you. <laughs> <laughs> but so in, in tandem with the tax cap, we've also had really stagnant state and federal aid as well as school districts traditionally. This year, we have an, a, a much nicer budget outlook. Um, the state has made a commitment to fully fund the foundation aid formula, which is the source of most aid-based funding that comes from New York State for school districts. There's also going to be an influx due to the American Recovery Act for funds that are earmarked specifically for school districts. Those of you that are looking at that and saying, that's great, that means all my teachers are going to get a raise. No, don't don't think that um, because uh, those those funds are earmarked specifically for for very limited category of of purposes that they can be spent on that relate specifically to COVID recovery. So it's no 
it's it's no joke and no surprise to anybody that that the school closures have taken a tremendous toll on the learning of children over the last year and a bit and 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 specifically at risk children who who may not have had the support at home to be able to overcome that that gap in instruction are being hit the hardest students with disabilities are being hit the hardest students who are have English language deficits are being hit the hardest. So that that funding from the feds is really earmarked for trying to remedy those gaps that resulted to remedy infrastructure gaps that exist to be able to help school districts get all their kids back into school full time. So all, all told, though, it's it's a good it's a good situation that we're going into the budget cycle with this year, much better than last year when the situation was much more austere. So generally, I think folks are looking forward to this year's election. The other reason we're looking forward to this year's election is that uh, last year, due to the the more urgent situation with the pandemic, we had a very unusual uh, election cycle where all New Yorkers actually voted via absentee ballot. It's uh, unprecedented. It had never happened before. There was no in-person voting at the polls. Um, Everyone voted via, and if you're a New York resident, you got your absentee ballot in the mail and you're supposed to return your absentee ballot. So that's how the entire school election took place. Interestingly, uh, and I didn't look at the numbers on the statewide, but anecdotally from my clients, the use of the absentee ballots drastically increased voter participation last year. Um, They had a huge number of ballots compared to what they were receiving through traditional poll voting. So it'll be interesting to see if there's, if those numbers continue since people participated last year, if they now will be participating in higher numbers of the polls. This year, we do not have um, that absentee voter you know, process where absentee ballots will automatically be sent to voters. However, the legislature just recently relaxed the process for obtaining an absentee ballot. So if you have a fear of a communicable disease, e.g. COVID, that is a basis now for getting an absentee ballot, but you still have to request one. You still have to make a request via an application to your local district and say that you're concerned about COVID. And as a result, uh, you will get sent an absentee ballot. So everyone should be doing that if they have any concerns about poll voting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really good point. You know, last year we did all just get our ballots and that that it will be different this year. You will have to go or request. But thanks for pointing out that you can request based on the fear of communicable disease, our friend COVID. So it's important. Um, And I I think that, you know, you mentioned all the pieces, why it's important that people get out and and use their voice in these elections, capital projects, at-risk kids, supporting gaps in learning. These are long, it's a long process to put these budgets together and these proposals, they're, um, you know, thoughtful, but people should make sure that they're reading up on it and taking part in the civic process. Absolutely. And it's not, it's not just enough to my mind, it's not just enough to show up to vote because there is so much so built into our system is a public hearing process on the budget. And I really would encourage each and, and I didn't know anything about this until I became a school district lawyer, but it's a wonderful, wonderful, informative process. And I encourage everybody in New York State to go to your local school district's budget hearing. Most of them are, have an electronic option this year as well, where you can attend remotely. But it's a really instructive process because the administration will go through line item by line item and really explain why the budget is varying, what the school district is going to be spending their monies on in the upcoming year. And this is what you are being taxed on. If you're a property owner, it's what you're being taxed on. If you're not a property owner, you're still being taxed on it, albeit at the state level as opposed to uh, the local taxation level, but it's it's still coming out of your pocket. Education is a huge expenditure for all New Yorkers. 
And I think it's tremendously informative to go and hear what is costing money. You'll be surprised to learn that personnel costs are a huge driver of budgets, health insurance, retirement benefits, pension contributions are a huge driving cost of, of school budget. Um, they're, they're in some sense kind of locked, baked into the cake of, of the budget every year. But there's other things too that really, I think going, participating in the budget hearing, reading those budget disclosures and, and informing yourself of how your school district is spending its money is really informative. And it, the, the thing that's great about the public hearings as well is they are interactive. So if you as, as a voter are looking at uh, your school district's budget and saying, you know, why, why, why are our insurance costs as a district going up? All right. You know, why, why were they in 2020 X hundreds of thousands of dollars? And now it's double that. What accounts for that? And, you know, the onus is on your, your team, your administrative team of your district to explain those discrepancies to you as a voter and make sure that you're informed about the decisions that are being made. So absolutely. Yeah. And I think that a lot of districts, if you can't make the hearing, even the virtual one, their YouTube channel or otherwise, they do post those hearings so you can go back and listen later. So no excuses, folks. You can can go ahead. If you're listening to the podcast, you can listen to your school budget. uh, (laughs) They are riveting. Well, I mean, I think that there's about a million other topics that we can talk about here. Um, DEI plans that school districts are putting out, that school safety officer debates, but we're going to have to save those, I think, for future podcast episodes, um, which is good. That means you'll come back and talk to us about other things. But I really appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us. And, you know, I think people should know that besides being um, a zealous and a wonderful school lawyer, um, Kate's also a fantastic cook with super cute dog, by the way. Um, (laughs) I I cooked my way through the pandemic. Definitely. I was one of those people that definitely cooked my way through the pandemic. It's my... It's my release. It's my hobby. So, you know, definitely, definitely fun. So yes, you can follow, you can follow my cooking adventures on Instagram. (laughs) Yes, that's, that's where I do. And I really am looking forward to the kimchi when it's ready. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you again, Kate. It's great to talk to you. Um, I hope people will get out on May 18th and um, use their civic duty there and and vote in these elections. And I hope you'll come back and talk to us about some of these other issues in the future. Thanks so much. Anytime. Thanks, Kim. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Legally Bond. If you are listening and have any questions for me, want to hear from someone from the firm, or have a suggestion for a future topic, please email us at legallybond at bsk.com. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Legally Bond wherever podcasts are downloaded. Bond, Shenick, and King has prepared this communication to present only general information. This is not intended as legal advice, nor should you consider it as such. You should not act or decline to act based upon the contents. While we try to make sure that the information is complete and accurate, laws can change quickly. You should always formally engage a lawyer of your choosing before taking actions which have legal consequences. For information about our communication, firm, practice areas, and attorneys, visit our website, bsk.com. This is attorney advertising.